0: Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who brings us great comfort in the name of Jesus. Amen. Every Christian has a calling from God, and when we as Christians need a pastor, for example, what do we do? We form a call committee, we look at call candidates. We decide who we would desire to serve as our pastor and we issue a call and then that man who we have sent the call to can either accept or return that call. We call that the the rite vocatus or the right and regular call for a pastor to serve specifically in the ministry, right? Now and only a few people in the church receive that sort of of divine call. Not everyone is called to be a pastor, yet every Christian has a calling. As there are many vocations in the Christian church, there are many people in the Christian church, each Christian has a calling, a duty, a role from God. Some of these callings are are man-made. Things like, um, uh, when we think about maybe our life in the Missouri Synod, things like a district president, synodical president, chairman, secretary. These are all made for service in the church, but we cannot call them uh, uh, divine callings. Man created these works. Man created these positions. Uh, they assist the mission of the church. They help serve the congregation in their ministry. And anyone who holds these offices should rejoice in them. Be diligent in them. Uh, but there are more extraordinary callings for Christians than these than the official offices that we make in the church and all these other things. There are there are callings that God Himself institutes for you as Christians to live in. And these callings are ones that are common. Many Christians have them. And all too often, we make these callings out to be maybe smaller, less important. Uh, they, They lack the luster and the officiousness of a lot of other callings within God's church. But that's not how God sees things. They're the most important callings a person will ever serve in. And they're husband, or father, wife, and mother, son, daughter, worker, boss, citizen, pastor, hearer, the older man giving wisdom to the younger man, the older woman giving advice and wisdom to the younger woman, servant, single people who are devoted to prayer and service within the church, loyal friend. These are things that God has built into his church, and these are things that God has built into his creation, and these things are high callings for Christians. Now, these things seem very mundane. They're, they're unimportant when we compare them to these great big ecclesiastical offices, these big jobs we invent for people in the church, like district president, or LWML zone president, or uh, president or CEO of Lutheran World Relief, or something like that. They do not receive all that much notoriety, and they have very little value in terms of institutional, bureaucratic needs. But when we look at these things through the lens of Scripture, when we look at motherhood, fatherhood, husband and wife, when we look at Christian friend, congregation member, when we look at teacher and servant, when we look at worker and friend, we see that these places have greater significance... These places have greater value. We see that God places greater significance on the mother who does nothing all day but toil for the sake of her children. God esteems that poor father who struggles to provide for his family and care for his wife over and above the financial secretary of the the greatest church organizations out there. God speaks a great deal more over these vocations than any other man-made job we could create in the church or in the world. And that means that the guy working nine to five so he can provide a home for his family, or the mother who's up again at two in the morning caring for her sick children, or the older and wiser man of God who speaks to give direction to that wayward or struggling younger man, or those old ladies in the church who come alongside the younger ladies to give them direction and how to maybe discipline children, or the Christian who lives uh, contrary to this broken and wicked society around us, or the daughter who wants to emulate godliness and purity to honor her parents, or the son who's striving hard to learn self-control and to bridle his tongue, or the worker who cheerfully goes about his or her work without complaint or bitterness towards their boss, Or the pastor who toils and labors over the Word of God that presents a faithful and true witness of Christ, or the Christian hearer who forces himself out in record breaking heat to hear the Word of God in a church that doesn't have central air. These are more precious to God than 10,000 synodical presidents, CEOs, church bureaucrats, or man made offices. These are more precious to God than the President of the United States. These are more precious to God than the greatest general in any army. These are precious to God because these are things God has built into his creation. And these are things that God has called his Christians to rejoice in. How does that work? How can we say that these are more precious, these things that lack bluster, notoriety, fame, that they don't come with fancy offices, they don't come with big paychecks and a bunch of institutional perks. Well, it's because God includes these things in His Word. Not only that, they are all numbered in His law, as all of these callings are directly addressed in God's Ten Commandments. These Ten Commandments are at the root of every bit of God's commandment and law in Scripture. They are the perfect summary of God's will and law for every human being who has ever lived on this earth, ever. Every bit of law in the Bible is just an exposition and clarification of what the Ten Commandments say. You shall have no other gods. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And so if you want to know how to live in your calling as a Christian, How to live in these vocations that God has placed you in, whatever they may be, you must know the Ten Commandments. They tell us all that we must know regarding our behavior, our conduct, and the needs of our calling. It addresses faithfulness to God, prayer, worship, the family, the workplace, society, and every other aspect of our lives and callings before God. And so we must know them, we must reflect upon them, we must bind them in our hearts, We must let let them teach us how to live. Be receptive to them as we live before God in piety and reverence, with love. Yet this is not some magical formula to success. Knowing the Ten Commandments won't make you great at everything. Simply knowing the Ten Commandments doesn't make you sufficient for the callings that you have in this life, whatever they may be. Rather, the Ten Commandments reveal how insufficient we often are in our callings. Because the more you study the law of God, the more you see how you fail to keep it. See, how many parents sit down and reflect on the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother, and after that reflection realize how maybe they've failed to be parents worthy of such honor? Or how many Christians have read, you shall not kill, and then burned with hatred towards a person in their hearts? Or how many of us have read, you shall have no other gods, only to devote the bulk of our lives to whatever passions our flesh really desire? You know, how sad and foolish we must look, as we, we claim to love and delight in the word of God, yet every day we fail to observe it. And the world, of course, takes notice of that. They love to point out how our inconsistency is apparent, how they would love to mock us for that. You know, uh, oh, look at that Christian. He lost his temper. Oh, look at that pious church girl. She said a bad word. Oh, that pastor, that man over there, he seems to know the Bible, but he can't control his kids. Oh, that guy over there mismanages his finances. That pastor looks tired and cranky all the time. He's not living his best life now, is he? right. And it's all enough to make us want to quit. When we all have this law set before us, we know we're not sufficient. We will have a guide, but as we have that guide, we stumble every step of the way, and eventually we fall off the map. Knowing the law alone does not make us sufficient for our callings. And that's what St. Paul is addressing today when he talks to the Corinthians in our epistle lesson. Paul's calling is from God. You see, some of the Corinthians had been swayed by St. Paul's opponents in the ministry, and they had heard that maybe Paul's not a genuine apostle of Christ, and he didn't have his calling by Christ to serve in the church in this great capacity. And not to mention, Paul did not demand that the churches keep all the rituals and all the things of the Old Testament Jews. And he told the Gentile Christians that they didn't have to be circumcised. And that was offensive to a lot of people. And so the Corinthians asked Paul, hey, show us some credentials. Give us some proof that you really are. Maybe a letter of recommendation to prove that you really are this apostle of Christ. See, they wanted something that would prove to them that he was an apostle sent by Jesus so that he could serve in this big-time important office that he was called to. They wanted some sort of man-made official proof that Paul had the authority to say that he, what he was saying and do what he was doing. And so, what does St. Paul say to all of this? He says, well, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are all sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but rather of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In other words, Paul is saying that the greatness and worthiness of his calling is not rooted in anything that St. Paul does. It's not rooted in his knowledge or working of the law. It's not rooted in how good Paul is at keeping the commandments of God. It's not rooted in the approval of other men. Paul does not need St. Peter's approval. Paul does not need St. James's approval. He does not ask for letters or recommendations from the other apostles to say, Hey, trust this Paul, he's okay. These things don't flow from human hands. They don't flow from human work. Rather, Paul says that his sufficiency to preach the gospel comes from Jesus Christ alone. His calling is entirely a gospel calling. He was not worried to stand in the role that God had placed him. Paul was a persecutor of God's church. He was zealous for the law of God. And so it was only when Paul receives the forgiveness of sins in the gospel that he's able to enter into his calling as an apostle. It was only because of the gospel of forgiveness. His letter of recommendation is that he preaches God's word. And the fact that there is a congregation in Corinth that worships Jesus and believes in the gospel, that was sufficient enough proof that Christ had called Paul by the gospel. Paul said, that's fine. That's my proof. You're my letter of recommendation. The Corinthians had the forgiveness of sins. They proclaimed to them, and they received... That forgiveness with joy. Paul was a sinner, totally insufficient for his calling, according to the word of God's law. He fell short in every way. He was meek. He was weak. Yet, according to the gospel of Christ, Paul boldly entered into this vocation with reverent joy. Because the law kills, but the gospel gave him life. See, it's not to imagine, too hard to imagine how life under the wall works, right? It's, it's, it's a life of failure. And missteps and concealment of shame, right? It needs human acceptance to function. So I fall short, what do I need to do? Well, I conceal it. I cover it up. I I don't want my neighbors to see my weakness. So what do I do with my weaknesses? I hide them. I pray that my failures are not discovered. I pray that they're not found out. And I don't want my neighbor to think that I'm not worthy. And so the problem is, we do fail, we aren't worthy. It's not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when we fall short. It's a matter of when we fail in our callings from God. And it happens more often than we'd like to admit. And so what do we do? We lie to ourselves. We keep track of the good. We get a nice curricula vitae resume coming up, and we say, Hey, look, this is the good that I have done. I want others to see it. And that way, we look better than we actually are. We, we have human acceptance that says we are sufficient for our callings. We have the approval of all the people around us, and we give that letter a recommendation. Paul is saying that this human acceptance doesn't matter to him. He doesn't care if the people in Corinth think he's unworthy. He knows he is unworthy left to himself, but he has sufficiency from another place. We are not sufficient to be called for any service toward God and man. We have not and never will earn these privileges for ourselves. Yet God still calls people. God calls men to be pastors. God calls women to humbly serve in the church of God. He gives people spouses and children. He gives us employment and responsibility. He calls us to live faithfully in all of these things. He makes us members of the assembly of his church. And the only way that is done is through the forgiveness of sins there's not a person on this planet who does not fall short of what they've called been called to be there's neither a pastor a parent a worker a family member who has not fallen short of the calling that they have been given by god and that means that we are all failures at some level when we are left to ourselves because the law demands adherence It demands perfection to the letter. The wages of sin is death. And to trespass against your vocation is a deadly failure. One moment of laziness is destructive to your soul and the person who you've been called to love. And that is terrifying. It would make us shrink back from any calling, any responsibility left to ourselves. What a weight that presses on us. It's enough to make every person want to hide from God, avoid every calling, not do anything in their life. See, there's no comfort in the law. There's no comfort in the Ten Commandments. There's wisdom. There's guidance. Yet Paul realizes that he does not live in a calling that flows from the law. His calling's in Jesus. His calling is in Christ. And in that, his work is more glorious, more wonderful, more beautiful than he could ever reckon through his own human vision. He says, now if the ministry of death... Carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, but the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. See, Moses... When he preached the law, reflected the glory of God from his face. You see, Moses had spoken to the Lord. He'd been up on the mountain. And now he comes down to talk to the people, and the glory of the Lord shone brightly off of him. And so much that the people, they were terrified to look at Moses. As Moses says and speaks the law to the people, it terrified them, it frightened them. He had to wear a veil over his face to conceal the glory of God that shone off of him. God's glory under the law is terrifying God's glory under the law is crushing God's glory is not seen simply in fear of the law though all that there would be if we were left with just the Ten Commandments if we were left with just you do this well it would break us it would crush us we'd be left nothing with God's divine judgment against sinners and yet we know our God doesn't delight in judgment Yet God's greatest glory is sending his son to die for sinners. That's what Jesus prays about in John 17. He says, Father, the hour is come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over flesh, all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. What is Jesus talking about? What does Jesus do right after he says, Lord, Father, glorify me? He dies. He bears the crushing weight of the law, and it's crushed under the weight of God's righteous judgment as all sin is destroyed as Jesus dies for sinners. See, the glory of God is more greatly revealed in the forgiveness of sins. And this is the glory of the ministry of God's righteousness. It is the preaching and administration of the gospel. And so in the eyes of God, the person who is worthy of the calling that God has placed him in is the one who has faith in Jesus. It is the one who lives in repentance and claims no righteousness of his own, the person who will refuse to list their accomplishments, their offices, their human honors, but will be satisfied simply with saying, I am a forgiven sinner. That's all I am. And that's all that matters. And that means that the father who rakes in the cash, spends copious amounts of time with his children, is wise, kind, and always smiling, but doesn't have the gospel, he's still unworthy. Well the father who struggles every day, seems overwhelmed, is always tired, doesn't have the right answers to a lot of stuff, and can't spend nearly as much time with his kids as he wishes he could, but is diligent in hearing, receiving, and sharing the gospel with his children is deemed worthy by God. A good father brings his children to Jesus. Every other label of good falls short. And these do not have the gospel These other labels, the the father who's wise, the father who's strong, the father who's smart, better be the father who knows Jesus. That perfect dad is still a sinner. There is no perfect dad. There are no perfect moms. There are no perfect husbands or wives. There are no perfect children or workers. There are no perfect teachers or citizens, church members or pastors. They are all sinners who need forgiveness. And according to the law of God, we have callings that we could never measure up to and according to the law of god we will see our failures we'll see how insufficient we are to fill these roles that god has placed us in because we don't measure up we don't meet the requirements we're not tall enough to get on that ride and according to the gospel we are made sufficient according to the gospel according to the forgiveness of sins God makes us sufficient and perfect for every calling he places us in. Not by anything that we do, but according to that perfect work of Jesus that's done for you and in you. As Jesus sanctifies us in our callings, he makes us holy instruments of his perfect work. And that's wonderful. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing but stumble and fail. But in Christ, before God, in his sight, we can do nothing but succeed. We know that we're sinful. We know that we're insufficient. But Jesus is not sinful. Jesus is not insufficient. His work does not fall short. His love does not waver. His hand accomplishes whatever it sets itself to do. And that means that we can confidently say, I am forgiven. And as I live under God, as I live in this world, as I live in relationship with the people around me, my sins don't stand in witness against me. No, I know that Jesus stands in my defense, he stands with me, he guides me, and he protects me. And that means that even though I'm not worthy, I'm not sufficient to even be called a Christian to serve my God or to love my neighbor, I will do every bit of it with as much vigor and boldness and strength that I have because my sins are forgiven. And I'm free to serve the God who loves me. Every calling that you have is under that word of promise. Be it sister or brother, pastor or hearer, teacher or student, every day we can find comfort and assurance in the fact that Christ has loved us. We can come together after a long week of failure and delight in that assurance together. As the father and mother come to have their sins forgiven after a long week of trying to stay on top of their children or as the teacher comes after a week of struggling to help distracted and uninterested minds love the truth only to take one step forward and two steps back. The friend who comes after failing to show up for their brother in need. The child who comes after having to be belligerently dragged out of bed to come to church. The the wayward child of God who comes after a long, unexplained absence. Uh, When we come as God's people, we set all of those burdens, all of those shortcomings, all of those failures, all of those weaknesses before the altar of Christ. We all come here for the same purpose. We come to have our sins forgiven by Jesus. We come to be assured of God's love for us in Christ. We come to rest from the labors of our callings and to be refreshed and cared for by the means of grace. We come to be fed. We come to be washed. We come to be strengthened by Jesus, whose grace makes us sufficient to live in his kingdom. We come in perfect weakness to hear Jesus say, my grace is sufficient to you. And my power is made perfect in weakness. And in this we live in the hope of the gospel. And in this we find strength to live in our callings. We live freedom to pursue motherhood, fatherhood, friendship. We live in freedom to pursue work and employment. We live in freedom to pursue ministry and life. We live in that freedom each and every day. Saint Paul says in the verse that immediately follows after our reading. He says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. I pray that God makes you bold to live in your callings in his kingdom. Be bold to pursue adherence to the law of God. Conform your life to it. Delight in it. Because it's good. It will guide you. But also put no hope in it. Be bold in confessing to Christ when and where you fall short. And know that he will remove your failure. He will give you strength and his perfect grace. He will deliver you from your failures and your shortcomings. He will fill every gap in your love and your work. Because his love is perfect. His work is complete and his grace is sufficient for us. Let us pray. Gracious Father, give us joy in our callings, knowing that you have made us sufficient for them through the forgiveness of sins. And in this joy, let us boldly strive to live according to the Ten Commandments, knowing that even as we fall short, we have been called by the ministry of righteousness in Christ. Help us to cherish our vocations and callings as sacred gifts from you, knowing that we have been called by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and in that gospel, we live in freedom assurance, and joy. Make us bold as we live in these things. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith to life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, amen.